0: It can bring such an immediate relief to those parents that are struggling and feeling that sense of support from the community. There's people out there that really care and are wanting to make a difference and ease that burden. Whatever it is that they're going through at that time, it has led them to be seeking support. You know, We just hope that providing nappies will just make that a little bit easier for them.
1: Hello and welcome to Mum Life, a podcast for ambitious mums navigating the sweet and messy journey of motherhood. I'm Leonie Kidanor, and each week I will bring you conversations with mums and parenting experts about the highs and lows of motherhood and tips to make our lives that little bit easier. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Natalie Pavopoulos, the CEO of the Nappy Collective. The Nappy Collective is an amazing charity that we at Mum Life Podcast are proud to support. In this conversation with Natalie, we discuss her motherhood journey. Natalie experienced numerous rounds of IVF in order to conceive her first child. She was so honest and open about her IVF journey and also navigating conflicting thoughts around wanting to progress her career and also wanting to have a child. We also discussed why she felt compelled to join the Nappy Collective as CEO and to support families across Australia in reducing nappy stress. Nappy stress is essentially not having enough nappies to change your child as often as you need to. So the Nappy Collective aims to reduce this stress for families across Australia by requesting that the community donate unused nappies at nappy bins. These nappies are then distributed to community partners who work to get much needed nappies to families in need. What blew my mind was that one in five Australian children don't have enough nappies and that one in 10 mums can't afford nappies. Can you imagine making decisions like, do I have enough nappies to keep my child clean today? And if not, do I have to sacrifice buying groceries for dinner in order to pay the $16 that it costs to buy a bag of nappies? Can you imagine watching your child playing, knowing that their nappy needs changing and thinking that you have to keep that sagging nappy on them for a few more hours, otherwise you won't have a clean nappy for them to wear to bed? Can you imagine the guilt, the impact you know it would have on your child as far as increasing the risk of nappy rash and infections What gets me is that as parents, we already second guess ourselves. We often feel guilty, overwhelmed, indecisive around our decisions most days of the week. Knowing that you simply can't afford to keep your child clean and healthy due to your financial situation would be heartbreaking. We all know how financially taxing children can be between the need for formula, clothes, childcare. (laughs) Don't get me started on childcare. (laughs) Most families do feel the financial pressure. But at least a lot of us have the privilege of being able to keep our children clean and healthy. Not everyone has that privilege. As this episode goes live, the Nappy Collective are fundraising to raise money to stay in operation. Due to COVID, one of their main donors has now pulled out and essentially can't give them funding, which is leaving the Nappy Collective at risk of being unable to operate unless they can raise $60,000 to keep them in operation for the next six months. To donate and keep this worthy charity alive, please visit com slash donate. I will pop that link in the episode notes as well. On the website, you'll also see a link to nappy collection points. So if you have any unused nappies that you'd like to donate, please have a look at where those points are located. The Nappy Collective are also the only Australian-wide organisation that focuses solely on providing nappies to families. So without them in existence, many Australian families will continue to feel the pinch around nappy stress. If you can play a small role in easing the stress for another family, another family that's just trying to navigate this sweet and messy journey of parenthood, then really, in my opinion, that's what life is all about. Let's cut to the conversation. Natalie, hi, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. You're the CEO of the Nappy Collective, an amazing nonprofit that Mum Life Podcast proudly supports. I'm certainly very excited to get into all of the great work that you do. And to be honest, actually, just to put it out there, I had no idea before hearing about the Nappy Collective, about nappy stress, and particularly in a country like Australia. Like you just, I guess sometimes you think, wow, I must be living in a bit of a bubble because I know some of the statistics that you provided were absolutely staggering. I mean, one in five children not having enough nappies to stay clean and healthy and one in ten mums not being able to even afford nappies and that's within Australia. So really looking forward to diving a little bit deeper into those stats and obviously the work that you do around that and what an admirable cause as well. But before we kick on with that sort of conversation, I'm really interested in knowing a little bit more about you and your motherhood journey. So talk me through a little bit about what you were up to before you had babies.
0: Okay, well, I guess I describe myself as very driven, goal orientated, and wanting it all. That was my mm. life before baby. I thought I'd be married, I'd have a PhD, I wanted to be a CEO all by the time I was 30. So, mm. a, a theme I had um, through a lot of my 20s and 30s was that I wasn't reaching my potential because probably I was putting a little bit too much pressure on myself. <laughs> I actually really related to your story, Leonie, with having parents who are migrants because I think a lot of second generation migrants feel feel that pressure to make your parents proud when they've sacrificed a lot to to start over again in in, in a new country. So I think that there was that theme going on in my life and there was a lot of restlessness going on. I'm originally from Sydney and I moved to Melbourne to start a PhD with my then boyfriend, now husband. And I think I I put that on him within like a month of us meeting. I was like, how would you feel feel about moving to
1: Melbourne?
0: (laughs) And he he was up for that, so that was great. and uh, I ended up taking actually a really great career opportunity in mental health and so put the phd on the back burner for a little bit and began working my way up as a senior leader um, and then eventually restarting the phd and juggling that part-time whilst ticking off all those other big things in life so you know buying a house together getting married etc so it was a busy time <laughs>
1: And uh, how did you go with transitioning? I know moving from states couldn't be easy. H- how was it? How did you find it moving from Sydney to Melbourne?
0: Oh, I'd always wanted to move to Melbourne. Um, okay. Yeah, I had a few friends and I, down here, and that was a little bit of a pattern of migration, I think, for Sydney people to Melbourne. Mm. And so I, I was very romantic about um the 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 culture in melbourne and you know the the nightlife and the dining and really got into that quite a lot um and in terms of the non-profit sector as well there's actually a lot more opportunities in melbourne than sydney a lot of like mm-hmm. um the private sector the head offices tend to be in sydney and for non-profits the head offices tend to be in melbourne so it was really where i felt like i needed to be at that point in my life
1: Yeah. And so you mentioned you bought a house, you settled in. At what point did you start having a think about potentially having a child?
0: Um, I think I always wanted a family, but it never really felt like the right time in terms Mm. of, you know, where I was in my relationship or what I was doing with work um, because I wanted to study. Um, and funnily enough, I was actually diagnosed with endometriosis in my early 20s. So in the back mm-hmm. of my mind, I knew that it was probably going to be a little bit challenging to get pregnant, mm-hmm. but it just felt like something I had a lot of time and I could deal with it at, you know, later. So I didn't mm-hmm. really bothered to check in with any medical professionals for over a decade to monitor how things Mm -hmm. were going um, or, you know, assess how much time I had or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until my partner and I got married and we felt all the ducks were lined up that we started trying Mm -hmm. to conceive. Mm
1: -hmm. And what was that process like for you?
0: Yeah, it was an interesting journey. By that point, I was 37. uh, Mm -hmm. And they say after 35 that you should start Doing medical investigations within six months if you haven't been successful conceiving naturally, so that's mm-hmm. what we did, and we um, went and saw a fertility specialist, and we did a laparoscopy to see what was going on with my endometriosis, and actually uh, was pretty devastated to find out that one of my fallopian tubes was quite damaged. So it seemed <laughs> like I only had one fallopian tube that would, you know, be successful in releasing an egg that that we might, um, you know, fertilize. So. That was the beginning of really feeling like maybe I'd left it a little bit long and and blaming Mm -hmm. myself. Um, I've regretted Mm -hmm. not looking into things sooner. So we kind of threw ourselves into into it. We tried a few different um, other types of treatments before accepting that IVF was probably our likely path to success. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: um, unfortunately, our introduction to IVF was um, basically a total disaster. Mm. (laughs) Um, What happened? So I experienced um, what's known as ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome which is meant to be quite rare um, and is where your ovaries over respond to the hormones. I, I experienced a quite mm-hmm. severe case of this um, where my ovaries filled up with a lot of fluid and they became permeable and the fluid went into my abdominal cavity. So mm-hmm. I, I ended up in emergency the afternoon of my egg collection with acute abdominal pain. I'd been vomiting. I could barely breathe. And I didn't really know, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know mm-hmm. that this kind of condition could end up being so serious. So um, we were in emergency and they were pumping me with, with pain relief and I, re- I really thought I was going to die. I actually had that moment where I was like, I can't believe it, but this might be it, <laughs> you know. I was in hospital for quite a few days. Um, my liver, my liver was quite badly affected, uh, and it took some time to recover from that experience, like physically as well as emotionally. Mm. Uh, and in the end, we only had one viable embryo from that experience, so um, mm. it was pretty, it was pretty crappy and pretty disappointing um, mm. as a as a first go. Because it doesn't happen to everybody, but it does happen, it does happen
1: to some. Um, and it can be fairly, fairly scary. For those of us out there who aren't very familiar with the IVF process, can you talk me through what are the sort of the key stages that you you go through? Yeah, so with IVF,
0: they will give you um, hormones that you will inject in the first uh, ten days or so of your cycle to stimulate mm-hmm. stimulate your ovaries to um, produce more eggs than you normally would. So for mm-hmm. um, a typical um a female you would you would produce one egg per month maybe two if, if you're if you're a little hyper fertile but they aim they aim to for you to produce maybe like 10 or so eggs or something like that and then what they'll do is um, put you under anesthetic when those eggs are like ready um, and they'll retrieve them um, from your ovaries and then they'll get sperm from your partner um, and then they'll fertilize them in a test tube to grow embryos and then they will then transfer them back into your uterus with the hope that the embryo will implant and that you'll have a successful pregnancy.
1: Mm. So that's
0: kind of the process in a nutshell. It's pretty full it's a pretty full on experience mm. in terms of like the the treatments involved, there's a lot of it's definitely not an exact um science. I I would definitely call it an art and a science because there's a lot of trial and error involved. And unfortunately, it's quite an expensive process as well. So it's one of those things that uh, feels like um, you're putting a lot of energy into, a lot of resources into, and you don't actually know whether it will succeed or not. It is a bit of an investment for couples, particularly by, by the time they've probably gotten to that process. It's been challenging already yes so, so so most people experience a you know decent amount of stress, I suppose
1: yeah, what was your experience particularly with like the as soon as you inject yourself with hormones, I mean, you see like I just think of like sex in the city, Charlotte, where she injects herself and then she's just like hyper emotional and just all over the place and you know is it does it what was your experience?
0: Oh God, I honestly don't even remember anymore. Okay. I think I was just trying to just keep keep life going, you know I was um. I, I ended up uh taking over the founding CEO at my at my work. So I was mm. I had a really big job at work and mm. I was also juggling my PhD and I was just trying to I was just trying to manage it all as best mm. I could. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um
0: and yeah, you definitely it's you know, you definitely experience those ups and downs. Um mm. but I just I just tried to keep going as much as I mm. could. Um because Otherwise it can, it, it does consume you, unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, it does, it does take over your life.
1: Yes. Um, yeah. And so after that very unfortunate first round, what did you decide to do then?
0: So, yeah, as I said, I was being considered for um, the CEO role at work and so we needed mm-hmm. to make a decision on what we would do and whether I would juggle that um, with with doing fertility treatment and um, we actually decided to put a pause on doing any further IVF rounds immediately after that first round Mm. and um, just get in a better headspace. And uh, I actually went really gung-ho on trying to get healthy and (laughs) ended up on this... Really strict like lifestyle program. We were eating organic, no coffee, no alcohol. You know, taking like ten different supplements a day. And
1: mm. um, we got
0: rid of all the chemicals in our house. We had no Wi-Fi. My poor husband, who yeah. loves loves coffee, you know, has like four cups a day. <laughs> trying to get trying to get him to quit coffee was a complete project in itself, which I we oh, never quite succeeded
1: goodness.
0: on. But he was so he was so patient about it. It was beautiful, but. um I think that was all me just trying to get some control over what I felt had been a pretty uncontrollable situation and also to feel as though I I wouldn't have any regrets that I'd done everything that I possibly could. So after some time, it was about six or nine months later, we switched IVF clinics, we found a new doctor and that one embryo that we'd gotten from the first transfer, um, the first cycle we, we transferred, that ended up being a chemical pregnancy. Which is where the embryo implants, but it doesn't actually grow. So, um, a lot of women experience chemical pregnancies and have and don't really know. They'll just have an early miscarriage. So, I was just aware of it because you know we're going through this IVF process. So that wasn't successful. So we had to do IVF again. Um, and then funnily enough, my next um, round. Uh, I had another really rare experience, which is where I ovulated early. So we had injected all the hormones. I had about, uh, I think, four eggs that were looking really good. Mm-hmm. And and then I was on a Sunday night. I just had this searing pain in the middle of the night, so intense, and I just knew it. I knew I was ovulating those eggs. Mm. Um, and apparently it was because I went to a Beyonce dance class on a very hot day and I got too sweaty. Really? <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Is that like a wrong um, thing or do you think that was just an excuse that was told to you? <laughs> wow. Well, I mean,
0: yeah, I don't know. Uh, it was, yeah, my doctor couldn't really pinpoint anything else. There's anything that we could think of. So she said, next round, no exercise. You're not allowed. Wow. <laughs> you know, We're going to do everything we can. So mm. we kept, we kept tinkering. Uh, we did two more rounds back to back, um, mm. tinkering with the drugs and we were finally able to retrieve and grow some healthy embryos. And we got them tested, which is something they recommend again that you do when you're over 35 um, because you're more likely to um, produce um, embryos that might have some sort of abnormality with them. Um, so we had, I think we ended up with four kind of embryos that had no abnormalities. Mm. The first transfer um, of an embryo was unsuccessful. <laughs> um by that point i was just really losing hope because i felt like we had done everything everything we possibly mm. could like it should have worked you know um we'd been delaying going on a holiday for about 6 months because of the fertility treatments so we were just at that point we're like stuff it we're just going to take a break we're going to we're going to just rebook that holiday and go mm. Um, of course, we ended up at a resort over Mother's Day, where I felt like every single woman was on her baby moon. All I could see was pregnant bellies oh, all around the pool. No.
1: Oh. <laughs> so I was like,
0: it was just it. It was very ironic, but I did mm. I did end up relaxing a little bit. I even had a few cocktails. You know, I was just starting. Yeah, and it's funny everyone tells you that when you go on a holiday and when you relax that's when you'll fall pregnant you know and Mm. actually you get you start to get really irritated (laughs) by that piece of advice because it sounds so simple yeah i think i think what happened for me though was i actually went further than relaxing i actually surrendered to the idea that i wouldn't get pregnant Mm -hmm. and i had started really contemplating adoption Mm. and so i think really letting go of that was maybe what helped because it was the next transfer when we came back that was successful, and I got
1: pregnant. So, wow, jeez! Yeah. So, how long was that process? Like that whole process before you fell pregnant? Um, so from
0: go to woe it was two years.
1: Yeah, wow. a bit of,
0: with with breaks. So yeah. it was it was definitely commitment, and there was many times that we wanted to give up. Um, yeah. as I said, because you devote so much time and. Effort mm. and money towards it, yes. and and many and that, that the stress involved is a a big factor why many people do um, give up on fertility treatment. Mm. Um, but we were, I guess, we were fortunate that um, my husband and I were both fairly stubborn and. <laughs> We,
1: knew, we just hoped we would get there in the end, and I'm mm. glad that we did. What would you say to women who are sort of going through that journey at the moment? Um, are there things that you found were grounding for you? I mean, you mentioned that you even went to the extreme of not having even Wi-Fi in your house because you wanted it to be <laughs> sort of as zen and, and, and clean as possible. Um, looking back on all of that now, what advice would you give them?
0: Oh, gosh, I think it's really hard to to tell people uh, this, but try not to put Mm. too much pressure on yourself because Mm. I think – it will, it, if it's meant to happen, it will happen eventually. You probably, you think about the average person who might try and get pregnant and it, it normally will take them six months. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's For many people, they're very lucky it happens immediately. But for most mm-hmm. people, it does take a little bit longer and you have to allow yourself that time for your body just to do what it's going to do. Mm-hmm. And um, And I think just talking about it, to other people is really helpful. I was pretty open about the experience, mm-hmm. um, even though I, I didn't have a lot of friends going through what I was going through at that time. Um, it just meant that people were, were checking in with me, um, and I felt like I could I could talk about the ups and the downs and and know that people cared, uh, mm-hmm. and that was really helpful for a lot of people. There's a lot of shame around having to seek fertility treatment, and I don't think there's any reason for that. I think mm-hmm. that. People get pregnant and have babies in all sorts of different ways. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's just the more that support that you can get,
1: um, the better, really. Mm. So, you fell pregnant, and what was it like being pregnant? What was that actual journey like for you? Yeah. So, looking back now, I, I think mm. it was, I was in a pretty anxious
0: state throughout the pregnancy, mm. um, which I think is really typical of, of, um, People that go through fertility treatment because when it Mm. takes you that long, Mm. you just don't feel like you can trust that it's all going to work out. You know, I remember counting the days until the twelve weeks, and then the twenty weeks, and then like Mm. that moment where if the baby was born prematurely that they could survive. All those sorts of things Mm. felt really important to me, Um, and it just felt like a very fragile and precious thing. And I was really grateful my body had cooperated, but I just didn't feel like I'd fully could put my trust in that. Mm. So yeah, it was um, it was definitely anxiety provoking. Mm. We decided fairly early on that I would resign from my role as a CEO, even though it was such an incredible opportunity and I was really glad to have been offered that role. And yeah. um, But the job involved a lot of travel, long hours, fair amount of stress. We didn't have family close by who could help with childcare mm. and mm. it felt like that was just the right thing to do for us as a family, mm-hmm. um, because again, we weren't sure if we'd ever fall pregnant again. We thought, well, maybe mm. that's it. You know, it'd be one child. You know, and be good to give it, give it everything that we've got. Mm. Um, so that's kind of where you know where I knew I was headed. Um, and physically, the pregnancy was um, was pretty hard as well. I had um, pretty intense pelvic pain. Mm. Um, Uh, I was vomiting until maybe 16 weeks, I think, or 20 weeks. Mm. Um, So actually had to finish work a bit early, about 32 weeks, because sitting and walking became quite painful. Mm. So then I had all this time to obsess about the birth, Mm. (laughs) which was sweet
1: super helpful (laughs) it's what we all do isn't it honestly
0: (laughs) how can i control this this thing that i actually can't control oh i hear you yes
1: (laughs) (laughs) and how was how was the birth for you
0: Well, I was induced at 39 weeks in the hopes that we would um, avoid a caesarean. I was treated as high risk because of, for stillbirth, because of going through IVF and being um, of advanced maternal age is what they like to say to women over over 35. (laughs) Um, And so uh, we had an induction, but in the end, we had to have an emergency C-section because our son became distressed Um, and he was totally healthy, a healthy baby boy, um, yeah, just beautiful, like the breastfeeding, you know, um, that, that clipped straight away. So I just felt lucky. really lucky. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. And how old is he now? So he's turning two. Okay, yeah, yeah. And you're pregnant with your second. And I'm pregnant with my second now. I'm due in about three weeks. Yeah, yeah. That's so exciting. And, and what was that journey like second time around? ivf again um we used one of our existing embryos
0: mm. uh and uh and it took straight away so that Amazing. was remarkable we were like is this is this how it's meant to happen like it's not going to be like another two-year journey
1: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah, yeah we just got the call like you're pregnant we're like but there must be something else, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, what's the know? catch? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and every scan was fine. We're like, oh yeah. wow, this is wow. this is great, you know. And I've I've definitely, I'm 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 a totally different person for sure. I'm I'm so much more relaxed, and
1: mm. um,
0: it, I mean, pregnancy is still hard. It's no walk in the park, but I I'm mm. definitely not 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 stressing the little
1: things and mm-hmm. just letting it happen. So that's been nice. It is so different the second time around, isn't it? I remember the second time around people would say, so how many weeks are you? And I'd be like, oh, um, I've got to check the app. I don't remember, you know, like it's like it's kind of like you're know. busy chasing after a toddler and you're doing your other things and it just doesn't seem, as you said, as stressful as the first time.
0: Yeah, I just, all that familiarity, you know, mm. I think really helps. You're just like, oh, I know my body can do this and, Absolutely. you know, um yeah, I don't. I don't know what um, type of fruit the baby is right now. Where yeah. I could yeah, because I'm up with <laughs> with, my, with my first, and I tell you straight away. Look, I'm so good this week. Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> so true. So. Talk to me a little bit about your experience of, of having, um, having a little one and, you know, obviously family, interstate and all of that. You mentioned that you'd um, quit your job at the time. So talk me through what that looked like. What was life like? What were the challenges you experienced right up front with the little one?
0: Yeah, so I definitely put all my eggs in the one basket in quitting my job and just deciding to focus on motherhood and being 39 at that point. So Mm -hmm. having been, you know, pretty independent uh, for a very long time. So motherhood was well, yeah, way harder than I prepared for. <laughs> um, I, can I thought, that, yeah, I thought, I thought, you know, juggling a high pressure job, doing a PhD, mm. um, you know, doing IVF meant that just focusing on motherhood would be easy. But that mm. was actually the opposite. Um, In my experience, I think I was so used to multitasking. My brain operated at a million, you know, miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So it took it took time to adjust to the slowness of, of having a baby mm. and that you don't have the option to be juggling multiple things when, you know, your baby's cluster feeding or they want to sleep in your arms for hours and that you really just have to be in the moment and take one thing at a time and mm. not feel that sense of guilt that you mm. are just actually just there with your baby just attending to their needs, I, I often mm-hmm. felt like I needed to be doing um, chores around the house or fixing things, or mm-hmm. you know, getting back to people whilst doing something else with my baby, and it, and that mm-hmm. just wasn't it wasn't helpful. I think that really got in the way of me enjoying it, mm-hmm. um, and I think all I think also there was a bit of like, well, is this all it is? This all it is, you know, like mm-hmm. a little bit of like well, maybe this experience is coming up a bit short, you know. It's not a glamorous job it's mm. at all. Um, and I remember being incredibly frustrated mm. for months that being a full-time caregiver isn't really considered a real job when honestly mm. it's the most real job, you, you know, that you can ever mm. get. Like it's Absolutely. just, it's 24-7, you know, you're covered in vomit, you don't have time to shower, you eat when you can, drink when you can, it's, it's intense. And, um, yeah, I mean, and and, and it's so wonderful and beautiful and, um, Mm. you know, you fall in love with your child, but, Mm. um, it's, it takes a while to accept that, okay, this is, this is what it's about. This is normal. And and I don't love it all the time and
1: that's okay. You know? yeah. And I think also <laughs> our personality types where we're used to achieving and, you know, all these external outcomes that we're producing. And then this is what I struggled with as well. All of a sudden I'm like, so what did I achieve today though? Like, what did I really achieve? And it's like, oh, I had a shower and my baby's alive. Like, you know, I'm like, no, but I want to be like conquering the world and, you know, and This isn't good enough and I need to be doing more and, you know, but then I can't, I'm tired, the baby needs me. And it's just, it's just such a shift, isn't it? For, for having, you know, lived a certain way for so long and then having to just, you know, literally overnight change the way in which you live, change your expectations and all of that.
0: Oh, 100%. I mean, the little things you'd think, like just being able to get out of the door and go down the road to buy some milk or mm-hmm. um, or you think, oh, I'll do mums and bubs Pilates, you know, that'll, that'll work out really well. Yeah. And then you can't because you get nap trapped and you're sitting on the couch and looking at the clock going, oh, well, the class has started. I guess that's, you know, that's done. And feeling yeah. like a failure because... You didn't have that agency to just go, oh, you know, the baby's just going to, um, you know, just cruise along with me. Like actually everything yeah. revol- revolves around the baby and you mm-hmm. have to just accept that your day will come as it comes, yeah. you know, yeah. that anything could
1: potentially happen and that's all right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, it's, um, yeah. It's, it's such it's a shift, for sure. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So at what point did you decide, actually, uh, the stay-at-home mum bit, it's potentially not for me, I'm ready to head back. So, yeah, what talk me through that.
0: Yeah, so I started missing work pretty early on and mm-hmm. really, I think, grieving that part of my life. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, is that is that over now? Is this all I am? What does this mean? Who am I? You know, all that identity mm-hmm. crisis. Stuff that can happen um, cool. when you shift from having been very career-oriented to being a stay-at-home parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky in that I actually still had to complete my thesis for my PhD. So I had something there that I knew, you know, I could come back to. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband was able to take parental leave for three months. So when he was about eight months old, I I spent three days of the week um, writing up my thesis and that was really great because I was still breastfeeding around the clock um, mm. with my son and and that was a good way to kind of ease back into things, just working mm. from home and getting my confidence back. Mm. When he was about um, – when he was about 10, 11 months old, I started looking for work again. And that voice in the back of my head though, was like, oh, but who would want me? You know, I haven't worked for maybe 14 Mm -hmm. months now. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, have have I been de-skilled and, but I also didn't want to lose the momentum I'd worked so hard for, for, you know, Mm -hmm. like 15 years. It was Mm -hmm. my career. So I was really, I was really hoping to find a part-time CEO CEO role, even though that felt like a little bit, like a needle in the haystack. and funnily enough, I came across the Nappy Collective role during the week of my 40th birthday celebrations. Mm. And um, it's like it sort of yeah, it felt a little bit like it was meant to be because it was part-time, it was a non-profit. Mm. Um, it was an issue that I felt like I could be, you know, really get stuck into, be passionate about. Mm. Um, and there was a few different jobs I was going for. And funnily enough, I actually was offered another role that was less senior, less flexible, less challenging. And I accepted it at first because I just thought, mm. I don't know, I don't know if I'll get anything else. But mm-hmm. having done, then I did my second interview at TNC and I just so connected with Sandra, the founder, mm-hmm. um, and the other board member. And I walked away from that interview going, oh, of course I can do this, you know, mm-hmm. this is fine. And, yeah. and they offered me the job really quickly. And so I, I accepted that and
1: things felt like it slotted into place. How did you go with mum guilt and juggling childcare and all of that?
0: Uh, well, at first, my husband and I were sharing care, so we did that for a while, um, and we decided to, because of the pandemic hitting, we decided not to put our son in childcare, because um, it's all seems very uncertain, so we ended up having a nanny um, a couple of days, which was which worked quite well, um, because mm. then, you know, childcare's closed, and it was just mm-hmm. such an up and down year yeah um, so we just we just kind of managed as best we could um, mm. but um, we were lucky in that you know we had a our son was young he was only one so we didn't have to juggle homeschooling or anything like that so i think a lot mm-hmm. of parents had it way more
1: tough than than we did mm. um, you know we, we managed to make it work yeah. So, what was it like those first, um, well, that first year in in the job at the Nappy Collective? Um, you know, what sort of initially sparked your interest? As you said, you had a few other jobs going. Talk me through your passion around, you know, what this amazing nonprofit does and then also, you know, where you see it heading. Well, like yourself, I hadn't heard of Nappy Stress or the Nappy Collective
0: mm-hmm. before coming across the job. Um, so there's this really amazing report that the Nappy Collective had released in 2019 which I, I read through at night and talked through with my husband um, when I was preparing for the interview and it just Blew my mind. Um, So, nappy stress is where babies and children don't have enough nappies to allow them to remain clean, healthy, and happy. And it's actually really common, as you say. It's one in five children under five will experience some form of nappy stress. And the impacts of nappy stress can be really serious for babies and and their families. So, the babies might experience UTIs or chronic dermatitis because they're. the caregivers are not able to change their nappies as, as um, often as as you might like um, and they'll extend the life of the nappy um, and the impacts can then span to impacting the parents. So um, poor maternal mental health is associated with nappy stress. Um, so it might be a pre-existing that the mum that, that the, might have experienced perinatal um, anxiety or depression, or it might come on because of this experience of nappy stress, um, mm. and it can even then extend more seriously to missed out social or educational opportunities because not all childcare centres, for example, provide nappies, and mm. the parents would need to provide nappies um, mm. for their children. So it might be they end up staying at home, and you know, and affecting them in that way as well. So. Mm. Reading reading through all that and understanding this issue, it really reminded me that you can never start too early in helping shape the trajectory of a person's life and giving them the best chance possible, you know, and you can really start, you know, as soon as they're born. So the NAPI Collective, I think, is really... Um, effective and it has a simple and direct way of helping families affected by nappy stress by redistributing leftover nappies um, to those families in need, but also it has a really ambitious long term goal to d- address the determinants of nappy stress, and that 's something I feel really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the determinants of nappy stress include family violence, um, you know other social disadvantage like being an asylum seeker or a refugee um mm. you know experiencing homelessness or being at risk of homelessness um financial insecurity all those sorts of things that as a community i think we can really do something about because mm. no no parent in australia should have to experience this mm. uh and i and most people are surprised to hear that this is something that that um you know, parents might experience in Australia in
1: their own communities. Mm. So how does the Nappy Collective directly um, support at the moment families like these? Mm -hmm. So what we do is we give parents an opportunity to collectively give back to
0: families in need by donating their spare leftover nappies. Mm -hmm. So as you and I know as parents, there's many reasons why you might end up with spare nappies and Mm. often they're all all around the house and the car Mm. and the pram. Um, So it might be that you forget about them and by that point they've grown out or they have a growth spurt and grow out of a size really quickly or you try a brand that just didn't work for your child's shape um, or maybe your child didn't like pull-ups and you know you're experimenting with different styles. So these nappies, I think, parents do realise that they can be very precious and rather than throw them away, we give them the opportunity over two weeks in May and September to donate those nappies at local businesses and community organisations who sign up to be collection points for us. Mm -hmm. Our dedicated volunteers then collect and sort and deliver those nappies to local community partners who directly support families in need. So they might be women refuges or relief agencies that support asylum seekers and refugees or perhaps parenting support services that support young mums or single mums um, so lots of um, lots of different um, parents and, and, and mums that might be in need of support. Um, we're the only dedicated organisation um, that focuses on nappies um, and getting them to the families that need them most. So if we weren't around, there wouldn't be any kind of nationally coordinated process to collecting all those spare nappies that are in everyone's houses um so since it was founded in 2013 we've distributed over 4.2 million nappies wow. and we estimate that yeah and we've estimated that we that's um supported about 140,000 children and 80,000 families That's amazing so it's,
1: there's about 300 community partners that now rely on us for mm-hmm. for nappies so that's the that's the massive portion of of the work that you do. Outside of that, obviously, you do fundraising and things like that. Is that essentially to support the operations of the nonprofit itself, or talk me through um you know the the, the, the financial component as well?
0: Yeah. So uh, the Nappy Collective isn't um, unfortunately a, a not for profit that receives ongoing funding um, for, through the government. So we do rely on the support of the public uh, to operate. We're very small and nimble. We only have two part-time staff um, we have a really dedicated board of volunteers, who um, a board of directors who volunteer, and we have volunteers all across Australia that help us with the um, getting the nappies where they need to go. Um, we've been lucky to date that we've had a major donor supporting us financially for some years, but things, many things changed in 2020 with with COVID-19, and unfortunately, we're now at a stage that we're looking to, to our community of supporters, not just for nappy donations, but actually for cash donations to help us. With our operational costs, so that we can keep on supporting families. Mm. Um, so we're doing we're doing a fundraising campaign in early April, and we're aiming to raise about six months' worth of operating costs, so that we can, can support around ten thousand families.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. And look, to everyone in our audience, we'll certainly be putting up um, a fair bit of communication around that and how you could um, potentially support with this. I mean, any donation is valuable at the end of the day. I mean, look at what such an amazing impact, um, you know, the NAPI collecting is having. It would be such a shame if for whatever reason, you know, the operations weren't able to continue due to sort of these financial reasons. So we'll certainly be doing our best as well to support and promote the amazing work that you're Doing. You did make mention actually, so the donations is a huge part, the NAPI donations, but then you also said that further than that, it's actually looking to support these families that are, you know, disadvantaged for whatever reason. What does that look like as a vision for the NAPI collective?
0: Yeah, so that's one of our long term goals uh, mm-hmm. is to, I guess, influence more systemic change, whether it might be a change in legislation or or budget um, or so forth that can really uh, impact those um, determinants of of nappy stress. So that's, it's not something that we can do on our own, of course, being so small, but we hope to develop a, like a coalition that has a a stance on it. And it might be around uh, GST. So some people are surprised to hear the GST is something that's still on nappies, Mm. uh, even though it's. You know we would consider that to be an essential item yes. um, and the, or it might be that there would be some sort of government relief for families that are you know are on the poverty line um, that so that na- nappies could come more cheaply for them. Um, I think there's a variety of ways that um, that we might be able to make an impact over time mm. um, because ultimately, I mean your goal as a nonprofit is that the cause that you um, support is solved. you know, wouldn't it mm-hmm. be great to make Mm. Make yourself redundant as a non for profit, yes. yeah. um, and and you know, and I think it, it's potentially achievable in Australia. Like we, we've done, we do amazing things as a community. Um, you know, we've seen how you know well we're doing with with um, managing the pandemic. Um, it's just about getting getting the community together um, and focus on, on on what you know what we're advocating for.
1: Mm. and um, and making it happen. Absolutely. Has there been a, a time throughout your time at the Nappy Collective where you sat there going, wow, like this is why I'm here? You know, just one of those really heartfelt moments where you thought, Jesus, we're making a big difference here. Does anything come to mind? Oh, uh,
0: There's definitely been stories that have been shared from our community partners of, of parents that have been um, given nappies and and the impact that has had on them. I think there was, um, there was one parent who she was a single parent. She was homeschooled. I think she had four kids. She was homeschooling Mm. um, and just juggling it all. Um, And her um, ex-partner wasn't providing any um, financial support. So Mm. she was being supported by this particular community organisation and just having the nappies just made such a difference to her. I think she burst into tears, Mm. Um, (laughs) you know. so. I think it just, it can bring such an immediate relief to those parents that are struggling and feeling that sense of support from the community. There's people out there that really care and are wanting to make a difference and ease that burden, whatever it is that they're going through at that time that has led them to be seeking support. Mm-hmm. You know, We just hope that providing nappies will just make that a little bit easier for them
1: in their situation. Absolutely. We were talking about, you know, our parenting experiences and how challenging and amazing, um, but also absolutely challenging they are. You know, when you do have the fundamentals in place, you know, even things like you've got a healthy child, you've got a roof over your head, you, you've got, you know, plenty of things like even nappies or, you know, where your formula's coming from or you can easily afford, you know, those sort of things. And yet still it is challenging as a parent um, with all of the changes that you're experiencing and the responsibility that you feel and all of that. So I cannot even imagine on top of that then being worried about, okay, I can only use three nappies today because that's all I've got and, you know, my child will have to sit in the same nappy for instead of three to four hours, maybe six to seven hours, you know, and just like that level of stress, I just can't even fathom. Um, you know, it's just it just blows my mind. Mm, I, I, I completely agree. I think being mm. a parent has just
0: really opened my eyes. I mean, I know now just how hard that job is and mm. having the privilege to be able to afford those essentials, it's one less thing I worry about. But every day, every day we worry about our kids, you know, like mm. are they happy, are they hungry, are they healthy, mm. you know, and what about those parents who do know that actually they, they are unsettled and there's, a, and there's a reason for it because they can't change their nappy. They don't have enough nappies. And mm. what many parents end up doing is buying, having, is choosing. They might only have a certain amount of money in that week mm. and mm. they're choosing between buying nappies and buying themselves groceries. So they might go out without food because they want to make sure that they've got enough nappies for their child. No parent should have to make that choice and no parent mm. should have to feel the, the shame that comes with feeling like you're not doing enough mm. for your kids because we already... We already put that pressure on ourselves. We already go through so much guilt. Yeah, yes. (laughs) So I think that if as a community we can help parents feel that more supported, you know, at a time, it's probably the worst time in their life, you know, Mm -hmm. then I think it's really worth it because for me personally, I know what a difference it's made when I had friends drop over meals, you know, in those Mm -hmm. early days or just check in with me and and ask how I'm going. You know, Mm -hmm. it's – it just makes a, a huge difference um to your own sense of well-being
1: and focusing on focusing on the big things have you noticed any difference in the number sort of the demand for nappies um you know a year ago versus today i mean with covid and everything like that any statistics around is there an increased need or is it still pretty consistent No, absolutely. The need has increased, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, despite there being
0: um, a lot of um, government support that's been offered, you know, through the JobKeeper Mm -hmm. Program and that sort of thing, there's a lot of families that have fallen through the cracks as well. Mm -hmm. So there are those that don't qualify for any kind of support because they might be asylum seekers or Mm -hmm. refugees or they are not Australian residents and they may have never asked for help before and have found themselves... Um, needing to go to, you know, social services um, for support around groceries and other essentials and things like that. So, Mm. the the community partners that we support um, definitely have had an an increase in demand. Mm. Um, And so, we were lucky in that last year we we really had to shift the way that we worked um, because we couldn't get public donations of nappies but we uh we called on corporates you know nappy supplies and we were able to get a lot of donations that way so mm-hmm. we were able to meet the demand um but i think that i think it's just going to continue really into this year i think we're still feeling the effects of of um the financial downturn and the pandemic and these stop and starts with with um snap lockdowns and the effect mm-hmm. that that has on people who are self-employed mm-hmm. so um You know we we will expect that you know we will need to be supplying
1: more nappies than usual Mm -hmm. um, to our community partners, and I guess probably leading on as you said the community even more so than you would. Um, corporates, um, you know, particularly because a lot of businesses are feeling the hit as it is uh, with with the lockdown and everything like that. So this is where you know even the small donations from each and every one of us can make such a big difference because it can sort of get things over the line for you if you're not having these big corporate sort of support. As you said, one of your major donors dropped out due to COVID lockdown. All of these things, businesses are being are feeling the brunt of it, um, and so yeah, even more important that if we're we can all chip in, Um, we can really make a difference.
0: Yeah, and I think knowing this is a particular issue where you can rest in knowing that those nappies are actually going to go to families in your local area because of the way that the Nappy Collective operates. It's Mm. actually all... Um, the communities, like collectives at that local level. So people are donating to local businesses, local volunteers are picking them up, and then they're going to local uh, organisations, to families that live in that area. Right. So you might not know who those parents are, but you are actually, you know, the theme for the last year really has been about support local and this is just another way that you can do that
1: mm, no it's amazing what a what an incredible journey that you've had I mean it's it's so interesting isn't it it's like the career ambitious woman you know has a baby herself is now supporting mothers and parents across Australia I think it's you know so admirable the work that you do and thank you for doing it um, and absolutely where we can support we certainly will um, when you look back on that journey, that whole journey, and you come full circle. Uh, how has your experience as a mother and, you know, and the work that you do now changed you as a person? Oh, yeah, it's um,
0: it's pretty transformative, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I put so much pressure on myself to enjoy that first year of motherhood mm-hmm. and to be grateful that I was a parent at all because mm-hmm. it was so hard to get there, that it actually detracted me from enjoying it and being in the moment. I often felt like I wasn't enough or I wasn't doing enough for mm. our son or for our family. Um, and it, it and really just got, it, it was a barrier really to um, really getting into the experience. So I think it's taking me another year and falling pregnant again and being in lockdown and <laughs> going mm. through a global pandemic, I think, mm. to really accept who I am as a mum and that all I need to be is me and mm. just give my child the love and attention and patience that I can give to him mm. um, and that's enough. I don't have to be perfect. Uh, I don't have to bake all the things <laughs>
1: mm. or always be
0: on top of the washing. So mm. I, I'm really grateful for that. I think I've I've finally learned how to slow down as a person. I think my husband appreciates that as well in me mm. that I've, mm. I've chilled out a lot. Mm. Um and now just awaiting our second child, you know, almost at any moment, I'm, I'm really actually, I just, I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it because I think that I'm going to enjoy it so much
1: more. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, it's so exciting. Very exciting times to come for you. Um, lastly, tell our audience how they can sort of find out more about the Nappy Collective and how they can support as well. Um.
0: So you can jump onto our website. It's uh, nappycollective.com, um, and there's heaps of information about nappy stress, how you can get involved, from donating nappies uh, to fundraising for us to donations, um, and you can even see the community organisations that those nappies go to, um, and you know the impact that your that your donations would make. So mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, encourage you to check out the website. And I'll I'll pop that in the episode notes as well. Um, Also, if you're following me or Mum Life Podcast on Instagram, we'll have a lot more communication around um, this upcoming fundraiser in April. So stay tuned for that too. Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your honesty, your vulnerability. It's not easy to talk about, you know, the the struggles that we experience as as people, as mums. I I really appreciate it. And um, I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot out of our conversation. So, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and give us five stars if you're feeling fancy. By subscribing to the podcast, every new episode will drop into your podcast library each week. Subscribing is also such an essential way for people to find us and to enable us to grow. Want to be part of the Mum Life community? Join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram at mumlifepodcast. Until next time, keep living your best mum life.